Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Welcome to the show. OMG, thank you so much for being here. I am excited to share the airwaves with you today. So this is Conversations with a Wounded Healer, and I'm Sarah. So nice to meet you. We have a really cool, very spiritual episode today that I think a lot of you are going to love. But first, let me tell you how you can support the podcast. I'm going to give you something. You can give me something if you want to. You don't have to. It's free for you. I get it. But if you want to go above and beyond and help out the podcast, because this shit ain't cheap, you can buy merch. I have merchandise. OMG. You can get t-shirts and sweatshirts and mugs and stickers and pins and everything your little heart desires. I stole this idea from the podcast maintenance phase, which I really, really love. I should reach out to them. I would love to have one or both of those hosts on this show. But anyway, I looked at their merch page and I was like, I can do that. So that's what I did. So we have a merch page on TeePublic. And so you can go to tinyurl.com slash CWH merch. So C-W-H-M-E-R-C-H. And we only have a couple designs right now, but I have partnered with an amazing designer who's going to help me create new things. It's going to be really exciting. So please buy some merch if you would like. You could also rate and review on Apple Podcasts. That can really help us a lot. And finally, if you want to throw a little cash our way, you can support us on Patreon patreon.com slash convos with a wounded healer is where you'll find me there. So those are all the lovely things that you could share. All right. On to today's guest, who I am was so excited to be able to sit down with. This is the first time we got to like really sit down and have a conversation together that wasn't like around a work project. And it was, I hope you can feel it, right? Like, Sometimes I've said this on the podcast before when I'm having conversations and it feels beyond words, like there's something that's being created in the moment that doesn't quite have language. And that's a spiritual place that I always find really exciting and really just wonderful. And that's what happened throughout most of this episode today. So My friend Kenji Kuramitsu is a mental health and spiritual care professional in Chicago, Illinois. Kenji draws on training in healthcare chaplaincy, group psychotherapy, and anti-racism consulting to provide care in clinical, nonprofit, and movement settings. His creative writing has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and he is the author of a booklet of Uncommon Prayer, Collects for the Black Lives Matter movement. So please enjoy this deep, spiritual, soulful, and juicy conversation with Kenji Kuramitsu. Hello, Kenji. Hi. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) Welcome to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. 
<laughs> We've already had technical issues, as was, I guess, expected astrologically, I heard. Sarah <laughs> Suzuki and I were just bitching about that this morning, that it's supposed to be an astrologically challenging week. Yes, it is. So we're right on time. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, do you want to introduce yourself to folks before we get into all the jazz? I'm Kenji Kermitsu. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I work in community mental health care right now in Chicago for an LGBTQ healthcare organization. I also have a small private practice and I'm really interested in groups and group therapy and individual treatment and integrating those two modalities. Um, I also have a background in spiritual care, having worked as a healthcare chaplain for about a year and a half, also here in my hometown of Chicago. I like gardening. Uh, I live here in the city. haven't been uh, outside a lot in the past six months. We're recording this in <laughs> mid-March, so maybe that makes sense. But I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and you're a social worker too, right? You're an LCSW? That's right. Awesome. Yeah. So we got connected because... My BFF, Sarah Suzuki, is connected to Crossroads. She met you in Crossroads, I think, as participants, right? And then you went on to work with them. Is that how it goes? Oh, that's right. Thank you for bringing in Crossroads. I, um, I yeah. worked for, um, for a while for that organization and its local affiliate called Chicago Roar, Chicago Regional Organizing for Anti-Racism. And um, I worked for them when I was in grad school, just part-time, but doing training and facilitation oh. around anti-racism, DEI consulting for institutions in Chicago and beyond. And it was in that capacity, I was facilitating an affinity group, a racial affinity group that we would do monthly. And I think it was June of 2020 that I met our, our mutual colleague, uh, Sarah, who was a, a participant in that group. Yeah. And she, yeah, she's my BFF. She's amazing. She's pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me today. Sarah was telling me like how amazing she thinks you are. And then you and I finally get to meet uh, at one of Sarah's presentations. And of course, I was like, yes, Kenji's amazing and wonderful. So, oh, yeah. And you helped Sarah and I when we had an interesting situation happen at the end of one of our presentations. And we just kind of wanted to unpack. And you were really supportive and helpful in like helping us just sort through some messiness. I remember consulting with you both. You were um, generous with sharing about what was going on. And um, I know as trainers as well, how much that you and Sarah do that work. It's been so meaningful to be able to work with you in that capacity to originally have met Sarah through that kind of training experience that we had, but then to be able to continue collaborating with you both in different ways. So particularly around, around these issues that I know we have a lot of shared interest and commitment to. Yeah. So you rock is the moral of the story. It's really, thank you, Sarah, for having me on. I was looking at the, uh, <laughs> the I think, 200 episodes that you had. And um, I have a sense that every car ride I will be taking for the next eight months, I could very well yes. be digging into the archives. And you have some great guests, and I appreciated hearing your, your work as a host. So thank you for including me in that number. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'd love to really start to dig in by hearing kind of your origin story. What led you into all of this work? Because you've got a bunch of different facets of what you do. So wherever you want to take that question. I'm happy to share a little bit about my background. I grew up in the Chicago area in a suburb here. Yeah, you know, My first connection with social work would have been through 
my high school social worker, who was a really meaningful figure to me when I was in high school. And um, that space created in working with him and um, seeing the impact of social workers in my community and in our schools was deeply meaningful. And when I went to university, also here in Illinois, and I thought about what to study and what would help me feel alive and connected with others in the world and kind of work I wanted to do. And I thought about those experiences that I had, thought about also a family connection. It wasn't called social work when my grandfather was doing it in that capacity. At least it wasn't called that in his field. But he worked in quote-unquote youth development. My grandfather, who immigrated to Chicago from Hawaii in 1959 to move in with his brothers-in-law, my grandmother's siblings, who were resettled to Chicago after World War II. He was a YMCA summer camp director for a facility called Camp Channing in Pullman, Michigan. And he spent his career working to help create this of access for young people, specifically for young people of color, as the YMCA worked to desegregate its facilities and provide opportunities for... Which in the 50s, wow. Yeah, that's right, in the, um, in the late 50s and then throughout the 60s to give young people, young black and brown people in Chicago, the opportunity to have access to. When we're in nature, I think it can feel so infinite, so boundless. So you've probably had nights where you've looked up at the stars. I don't know if you camp or anything like this, but maybe even just on a drive home and a place where there's not a lot of light pollution. And I think there's something that was so meaningful about the work that he did, allowing and inviting young people who might not have envisioned a way for themselves to access expansive life in that way connected to the land outside of the so-called concrete forest of urban Chicago. And his work has also been a, a guiding star for me. I've really appreciated. We actually had a 50th reunion for his summer campers last June in 2022. And I got to meet all of these folks in their 50s, 60s, 70s who had worked with my grandfather for years when they were growing up and came back to this place all of these decades later. Is he still alive? My grandfather passed in the fall of 2020. So he didn't get to be there. That's right. He had been able to be at some reunions over the years, but he wasn't able to be at this one. And uh, the new owners of that camp were kind enough to hang a, a, a photo of him and my grandmother together in that new lodge, which has now become, a, I think it's a brewery and a, they rent it out for different events. And, and it was a very meaningful thing. Sometimes I talk about my grandfather's experience with camp and with summer camp as a summer camp director and working to connect young people to the outdoors, and then the experience that my grandmother's siblings had in camp, in a prison camp in California during World War II. As these two stories of camp. Mm, yours and Sarah's family. That's right. That's right. That was originally yeah. a, a connection point um, to Sarah. Yep. And my visit to one of these camps called Manzanar in California when I was in my early 20s mm. was a life-changing moment for me as a young person. And the psychoanalyst Wilfred Bion talked about his experiences in the war many years afterwards. And he said something that he said, I died there when I was in the trenches mm. and I saw my friend pass next to me. And pass is probably a gentle word for what he experienced. But there was something about visiting Manzanar that I felt, oh my gosh, a part of me or died there or came to life there in a different way. So yeah, that's a little about some of the stories that I've um, found very meaningful and, and cohering in thinking about doing this kind of work in the world. 
Mm. And did you have the dual degree of the MDiv with LCSW? That's is, right. is that how you did the chaplain work? Okay. Yeah, that's right. I studied at McCormick okay. Seminary here, a school that I have a deep fondness for. And I studied for a divinity degree alongside social work. And why not stick with that? What led you more to the social work side? My feeling is that the disciplines are different and distinct, right? Uh, uh, clinical, ethical, legal, and professional boundaries of a, a clergy person, a chaplain, lay or ordained, doing pastoral care or spiritual care, I should say, and a psychotherapist providing clinical services in a different capacity. Each have their own unique contours, I think. And um, that being said, I see that kind of work as porous in some ways. So while I'm not working full-time as a healthcare chaplain any longer, I really appreciate opportunities I have to work with individuals and institutions in a spiritual care capacity that includes for local nonprofits and then foundations here in Chicago. But it is also very meaningful to be able to work with folks in a different frame, the psychotherapeutic frame, and to experience some separation as well from the role of spiritual care provider. So I too get a lot of life from working with individuals and especially groups around progressive emotional communication, intimacy, and what we do to avoid it or take flight from it, things around sexuality and aggression, and particularly around um, issues of identity. And that work feels able to be done in a different way in a longer term psychotherapeutic capacity rather than the uh, often immediacy or urgency with which many spiritual care encounters take place in healthcare settings. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. But I do think too, I mean, I talk about spirituality a lot with my clients and I, I mean, it's funny because when I teach about addiction, you know, obviously the 12 steps incorporates spirituality and I believe that it's one of the parts of being a human that is so important to investigate and develop in many ways. And I know that there are plenty of people out there who disagree with me, but I think therapy is a spiritual endeavor. I think so, too. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. You know, psychoanalytic treatment, you may go um, five days a week, which sounds kind of bonkers. But if you think about the psychotherapy process, not dissimilar from a meditation practice or a, a cultivation of an internal space, which ideally one could practice every day or even thinking about therapy in line with these other healing traditions, tools, modalities. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. I know some folks may not hold the work of therapy in mind with an explicitly spiritual frame, which is also okay. And I happily work with folks who don't have that kind of value or commitment as well. But I do think there's something about that image of Carl Rogers had that wonderful story, right, about the potatoes in his basement. Wait, I don't know that I know this. <laughs> he wrote about it so, I think, just a few sentences, but it's really stayed with me. And he talked about being a child and walking down his family's steps into the cellar. You can imagine dust kind of filtering in the air through maybe a light coming in from a window. And he stumbled across a bag of potatoes that had been left there for a very long time, and they had begun to sprout. And he noticed that those spindles sprouting up from those buds of potatoes would sort of grow up into the air, and then they had started to curve towards the light falling in through the window. And you know, he spoke to how moved he was to see the pull towards the light of these organisms that were 
in this musty cellar and talked about that human urge, potential, self-actualization, whatever, to pull towards healing and growth. And I feel like that must be of deep value in your work around helping folks remove some of the boulders getting in the way from having that free flow, having that open orientation towards growth, towards healing, that there's something intrinsic about that to the human spirit. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it makes me think all the anti-racism work that we're both doing, is it more challenging right now in the times that we're living in to move towards the light because of all of these barriers that are in our way? I have the debate with myself all the time, like, is this the worst time in history? I mean, probably I would say World War II was pretty bad. But in my lifetime, this is certainly this is certainly the worst time when I've been alive. Mm. I appreciated you saying World War II was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. And for me, as uh, my father is Japanese American, my mother, German, Italian, Serbian background. So the legacy of they were here both in the U.S. as were their grandparents uh, during the war. But the legacy of the Axis powers of camp and camps of dehumanization, those echoes are frightfully reverberating in the world today. Right. Um, between authoritarian regimes, these strong exactly. men, leaders. I read a story a few years ago about a Russian family that is really a tragic story. There was basically a bag, kind of playing with this Rogers image of the potatoes. The family in Russia, maybe 15 years ago, there's a bag of potatoes that were rotting in their cellar, in their basement. And apparently sometimes when potatoes rot, they give off a certain toxic gas or something like this. So actually four of the family members, I believe, died because one by one, they would go down into the basement to check on something and they wouldn't come up. And it was a horrific saga of until wow. someone, and it may be, um, I'm not sure if it feels right to kind of play with as a metaphor, this horrible loss that this family went through. But there's something that I think we could texture about Roger's idea about the human move towards growth, that there's also something so, and for me, I think psychoanalysis provides the framework for thinking about this really effectively, but there's also something so toxic, so poisonous, so warped, so lethal that can brew in human beings and in us and in the other humans in the world around us. And I think we're seeing some of that play out in the world today, in the U.S. and internationally. It's interesting that, yeah, that those were both potato stories. And I wrestle with the question a lot about, and this is a question that, you know, people have tried to been studied forever, is human nature good or are we inherently evil, right? When we're left to our own devices, unless there's some sort of civilization and I want to believe that we are inherently good because of that, like move towards the light. And I just get so downtrodden with all of the negative things that I see. And again, that's kind of like, is this just because this is what we're swimming in right now? And, you know, if we were in a more optimistic time, might I feel differently? I it's just it's a weird time to be a human. It is a strange time to be a human, Sarah. I have a friend who once said uh, we were having a sleepover. It was for his, uh, uh, right before he got married. He rented a, a canal boat in the UK and we were crammed into this little boat on the river and in Bath. And he said, uh, <gasps> In Bath? <gasps> in Bath, yeah. I loved, yes, Bath. You're pronouncing it correctly. Mm -hmm. And he said, 
Kenji, sometimes I feel like if I could have been born 50 years from now, that would have been like the right time. You know, he said, based on what I want to do, so much of my life, I feel, will be towards setting the ground or setting the seeds. We can probably critique a little the image of light and dark for being racialized as well, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, civilization being something that's very discontenting at times, too. I think it was Leonardo Boff, who is a Brazilian liberation theologian, who talked about the need for a new barbarianism. You know, if, if this is what civilization has to offer, give me something tribal, give me something right. deconstructed from that, give me... Um, mm -hmm. So, it is a strange time, I think, as we're wrestling with what our affinity is as persons to these national projects. And I think a fascinating time to be doing the work of spiritual care and psychotherapy. Yeah. What gives you hope right now? You know, I just got back from this conference, the American Group Psychotherapy Association, oh, which yeah. is uh, for any mental health professionals listening. It sounds like you may be connected or aware of them too. I just, I've heard that it's a great conference. <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's uh, very imperfect. It's very jagged at times, but it's very meaningful for me to be a part of that, that professional community. And um, we had a plenary from a speaker, Reverend Ronald Hobson, that um, I haven't yet watched in full. I'm the kind of person who sometimes sleeps a little late. And so uh, I'm going to watch the recording of the full talk, but um, it was quite early. But from what I heard and from what colleagues had shared, he, he sort of presented on doing group therapy in an age of white supremacy, of capitalism, of these social movements. And there was this real clamor, I think, from uh, participants in the conference that, well, where's the hope? Where can that leave us or where can we go? And, um, you know, I think his invitation to us, um, thinking of a, a comment that my colleague Justin Heck, a Jungian analyst, made, I think Reverend Hobson's invitation to us was for us to generate and provide that hope and to feel that out and explore it. And for me, if I'm thinking about hope alongside the strains of pessimism that have been really sobering and tempering, especially the writing of like Ta-Nehisi Coates or these other writers who are like, fuck hope. <laughs> I think if there was a, a hopefulness for me, it would be around the way that it seems that communities of affinity and shared membership, maybe that we have, are beginning to explore the haunted histories that we've been talking about and to try to make some real repair around them that I have some hope that some of the um, reactionary right-wing efforts that are happening around education, around storytelling, around, I mean, are happening in part as a response to what feels like is a genuine concern from increased factions of society to, to tell the truth about the nation that we share yes, about this land, about these histories. So that feels adjacent to hope for me. I'm so glad you said that because that if we think from a psychological standpoint in family systems, the truth teller is always, you know, That's ostracized, right. right? I was the truth teller in my family. So I'm the black sheep, right? I'm the one who's the making waves and causing the problems. Yeah. And then I had uh, a teacher tell me once from Buddhism, there's the Mahakala. Have you heard of this? It's the demon, I guess, that protects the truth. And so the closer you get to the truth, the more the demon like tries to keep you from it. Mm. I just love I 
that does give me hope. It's like this paradoxical hope of because there is so much resistance, that means we are getting close to the thing. Woo, Kenji. <laughs> Sarah. Goosebumps. Yeah. Thank you. That Yes, I feel like that's the reframe that I need. I appreciate you reflecting that. Oh, thank you. That image of the, the demon that, that fights harder and harder, and that, that feels right right on to me societally, but also as we're thinking about working mm-hmm. with our, our clients and respecting, and I know you and I share a motivational interviewing, and I think internal family systems also has language for this, but respecting the defenses, the protector parts, uh, for me as a group therapist, the yes. tremendous mm-hmm. feelings about not enoughness that emerge when doing combined treatment, or I had a mentor who once said that our defenses are unconscious, or else they wouldn't be able to keep us safe, and um, how hard they might fight, we might fight if we see therapy as a, a wrestling match or kind of dragging some part, kicking and screaming into the light. And that's, I think that's not a, a posture that you or I would want to have when working with folks about the tenderness and the intimacy of life, of inner life. And from the NARM perspective, what we talk about is building the capacity to tolerate the truth when it comes to like our own trauma. And so if we put that on our country's history, that's right now, wow, as a people, we are trying to build the tolerance to really feel the anger and the grief yes. that need to be felt yes. collectively. And this is, oh my God, I'm getting, I'm just getting on, <laughs> on such a deeper level. Like Sarah and I both signed up for Resma Menicum's training and oh, that's wow. he, what he talked to. He was like... He talked to the white people and he's like, white people, you do not have a collective way to grieve or a collective way to be angry. That's something that people of color have had to develop out of necessity, but white people haven't had to. And that's hopefully that's what we're doing. I mean, that's what I want to do as a white person wanting to help other people build the tolerance and the capacity to hold all of the pain that has to be felt. Yes. Right. Because it's been projected and discarded and suppressed and ignored. Oh my God, Kenji, my insides right now. (laughs) You gave me chills uh, in this moment, Sarah. I mean, that's exactly right, I think. For me, this is, again, I I look in part to psychoanalysis, but psychoanalysis also has its own troubled history with race and otherness. But there's something to what you said about if we don't work through, if we don't feel, if we don't grieve, the ways that we'll be committed to repeating, to repeating, to repeating. And my feeling is that the work you are doing with white therapists, with white people is so important because I think some of the shame, some of the embarrassment, some of the hatred, the self-hatred, but maybe just to stick with shame, I think a lot, a whole lot of the shame that we as people of color of different backgrounds have in the society, I think a lot of that is disowned or discarded or refused shame from our white siblings and white people that is being projected into us that we internalize 100 so the more that you and others are creating communities to have these kind of radical conversations affectively congruent conversations the less i think it'll fall consciously or not on people of color to feel this kind of shame and discarding that we are so good at doing to ourselves sometimes and to take that even further. So in NARM, we talk about shame as being self-hatred. And 
I came to this with another friend recently, and I'm trying to see if I can like bring it back in this moment right now. Nice of you to call me a friend. Thank you. For oh, that. yes. When you say yes. another friend. Yes. Thank you. Let's see. Do you ever have moments where there's something so big that it, you don't have language for it? Like that's what this feels like. And I'm trying to, oh, sure. I'm trying to conjure language. So I feel like I'm of German heritage too. And so to like get in contact with the hatred that my ancestors had to feel the need to destroy other humans, to attempt to annihilate. Mm. That's in my lineage, just as much as the trauma of the Jewish people and the Asian folks and all the people, right, who suffered. And I would hate myself if I really let myself take that in. So I think, right, that the shame that you just described, white people sort of pushing away, I think that is it's trying to not feel the intergenerational trauma of being from evil, right? Mm, I can understand why um, that would feel terrible to feel. And why white people are not going to want to feel it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Right. That's right. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot. I've had that experience very often, Sarah. What did you say? Feeling that something is so big in words. And I, I watched you in this moment sort of turn to, to feelings and kind of find a way to access what you were thinking about. And these, um, this is the biggest thing there is, I think. Right. And you vibrate on such a spiritual level. I can just only imagine what it must be like to be your client and to like swim in this space that you create. I feel like the wave that we're riding right now is just like taking us to this really juicy spiritual cavern that we're sort of like opening. And I, it's funny because I think some folks could listen to this and be like, they're not fucking saying anything. And then the folks who are tuned yeah. to the vibration are like, holy shit, this is everything. That's <laughs> funny, Sarah. I appreciate you reflecting that. And I, I hope it's a good enough in the Winnicottian sense experience to work with me. And if clients are listening to this. I hope you'll let me know when that's not true. <laughs> but this idea of the cavern is really just a beautiful image. And, you know, I hope I'm not doing too much intellectualizing or, or being abstract, but Gayatri Spivak, the post-colonial theorist who created and then disowned, as sometimes parents do to their children, the idea of uh, strategic essentialism, you know, in which she said different minority groups should come together coalitionally, strategically, Asians, right? Even though we have a million different kinds of Asians, whatever that means, um, LGBTQ, whatever kind of coalition groups. She talked about doing that strategically, but not succumbing to thinking we're actually all the same or reinforcing some kind of whiteness of thinking. Mm -hmm. But she also had this, this great quote, this great paper, may have been a book, uh, Can the Subaltern Speak? And I just think that name is so um, powerful. It, it what she was exploring is, can the cavern and the space that's created there, and can folks who are silenced and whose voices have never been heard, folks whose voices erupted in the 60s, I think have been erupting over these past few years, who have maybe found different underground spaces, can the above ground even hear, even hear them? So it feels very connected to what we're vibrating on in your language. Mm. 
Well, and the more people who are in the above ground, I suppose, start to dig deep, like we're talking about before, right? We're looking at the history, the more above ground quote, that sounds really, (laughs) it sounds a lot like, I don't know. It's not the greatest metaphor for me to say it feels like, but whoever it is, it's, it's who has power, right? Let's say it that way, right? Like, People in power being willing to look at the history, being willing to reach around behind wherever it is to share and to, again, get honest, right? Tell the truth. The more that can happen, then the more those stories will be heard. I think that's right, Sarah. And I, I appreciate your, you know, acknowledging the discomfort of the image too. I mean, I, I think those underground caverns and corridors run through each of us. And as you said very well, you know, maybe dependent in some ways on our ancestry or identities or the legacies we inherit, but those underground spaces are not just societally, but in each of us as as people. And um, it seems to me there's a, it can be a really hard journey. I know it has been for me personally and professionally uh, spelunking there and maybe part of what we do with our, with our loved ones, maybe including our patients or and our clients, if we think about love in that way. And I think we do. We do on um, this is, podcast. Is to yes. be, <laughs> we do on this podcast. We do. That's right. Is to be with, to be with. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. I'm so mad we had technological problems at the beginning because we didn't, we don't have all the time to dig into all the juicy things. But I, ha- I have to ask you before we move towards ending so with all of this, would you consider yourself a healer? I've said this a few times, and um, my professional base is that psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, sometimes annoyingly so. Sometimes I wish I had another base or mother tongue. You know, it's a complicated paternal and parental relationships yeah. there. But in that space, I think there's actually a lot of devaluing about the idea of a healer and what it means to be a healer. And I think some of that is righteous criticism of the kind of something that gets under my skin a little too, which is like the um, these mass influencers and the way that they often commercialize healing and sort of bend consumerism as community and multi-level marketing schemes tap into the same kind of need that we have as humans to, to heal and be healed. Cults, right? These high mm-hmm. control groups. Yep. I think archetypically and in a Jungian sense, I really do resonate with that idea of the wounded healer. Uh, my colleague Justin, who I mentioned earlier, said recently that we act from our dreams and we dream from our wounds. And I really love loved <gasps> that. Ooh. We act from our dreams and we dream from our wounds? Some, something like this. That's right. Wow. My dreams involve doing the work of healing and boundary, careful relationships, caring relationships, of being a part of the healing movements that are taking place in the world and trying to um, explore those those inner corridors, those haunted hallways, the ghosts in the nursery, the, the angels there, as Selma Freiberg said, for me and, and for the people that I know, including my clients. So I, I think I would, uh, it's probably a very Kenji long way of saying, yeah, I like that word, healer. <laughs> Well, the long version is good for podcasting. So thank you. Thank you for letting me take the scenic route with you. Right. Well, if you just said yes, that would make a really boring question (laughs) then too, right? (laughs) 
Well, you and Sarah and I talked about potentially having an episode together where we really honor Derek Dawson. I think that we should for sure do that because I want to spend more time talking with you on here. And for anyone listening now, Derek Dawson was uh, I aired his episode twice, like a week or two weeks apart in the midst of the, the George Floyd murder. And uh, he has passed away and he was somebody that was very special to you. And I only met him once and got to talk to him on the podcast once. But man, he touched my life as well. And I know Sarah feels the same. So I, I think we definitely need to have you back on so that we can have uh, uh, an episode to remember him. I would love that, Sarah. Yeah. Maybe just in this moment, I'll say it meant so much to Derek that he was on this podcast with you. And he used to share that link far and wide. I miss him terribly, terribly, terribly. And um, it's so good to um, hear you say his name and to know this is a shared connection we have too. So I would, I would love to, mm -hmm. um, I think that's a fantastic idea. I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll definitely make that happen. Well, if folks want to hear more from you before you're back on the podcast, uh, is there a place they can get in touch with you? Where can they find you? We don't know how long uh, Twitter will be a thing, but I'm I'm on there. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I have uh, a website. It's KenjiKuramitsu.com. I'm also on what I find a very challenging social media site, even among the challenging social media sites, which is LinkedIn. So if folks want to connect professionally, I'm on the LinkedIn. And my practice website is uh, called Kintsugi, K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I, psychotherapy.org. Ah, wonderful. I have some friends who are, they call it the Kintsugi Collective. And oh, is that right? Yeah, they do some, some healing work with therapists who consider themselves disabled or queer or yeah, it's really cool. I'll have to send you a link. Hopefully they won't sue me for my name. If they've been around a while. Well, you could sue them too. So <laughs> I'm sure that it will be fine. I'm going to guess that they're going to be in abundance with this because they also did not make up the Kintsugi idea. <laughs> right? Amazing. And for those who may not be familiar with it, it's this um, one of my favorite poems uh, is called The Joins by uh, Hannah Block. And it's about Kintsugi if you want to read that poem. But it's this Japanese, as you know, Sarah, art of repairing pottery and ceramics with precious gold so that the cracks can kind of illuminate where those breaks are, where those fault lines are, rather than hiding the injury. Yeah, which is what we're doing here on the podcast, too. Thank you so much for um, the time and, and inviting me to be a part of it. Yeah, thank you. It's really nice to spend time with you. We'll have to get to do more. That'd be great. Thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>